Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. We are 12 weeks into 13 weeks, believe it or not. We are excited to... uh, continue our series. Let's start with a word of prayer and get into a very common objection to the gospel that we need to be prepared to respond to. So let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity we have to again think through what people say in their defense of their own lives, and we're called to take their accusations and defend the truth. Of course, the truth is defensible on its own. It defends itself in many ways, as, as others have said, and yet we want to answer with gentleness and respect, but we want to answer firmly and destroy every thought that's raised up against the knowledge of God with weapons of of warfare for the right hand and the left. We want to be able to tear down these false accusations against Christianity, and some are just ridiculous. Others are more profound, and today as we think through something that all of us have heard if we've shared the gospel. Eventually we get this, and it doesn't take eventually. It usually is really early on in our evangelistic experience that we have people speak to this issue, and even some of us uh, may wonder about it ourselves, but I pray that we could think through this biblically, that you would help us to have not only a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches, what you've said, but be able to give a rational and helpful response to the things we'll talk about tonight. Thanks for this crew, for their faithfulness and consistency in coming, their willingness to learn. I know many are online who listen and download, and we thank you for them as well, but thanks for those in the room tonight that have come out on this Thursday night. I pray that you would honor them and bless them for their investment of time and studying here together. So God, thank you so much for last week, for the break, for the chance we had to give thanks to you in more specific ways. Pray God that we would be attentive and alert and that you would teach us tonight through the teaching of this particular outline in Jesus' name. We're talking about exclusivity tonight. And I'm going to add in this first section a discussion on the nature of truth, which is somewhat of a review because we've dealt with that. But I want to talk about the ways that this objection is worded. It should become very familiar to you even as you hear some of the things that I have jotted down to summarize what we hear as we start to speak about people's need to repent. As it says in Acts 17, we're calling everyone everywhere to repent. We're calling all people in every place uh, to put their trust in Christ because the world, according to what God has told us, will be judged by Christ. And so we want them to get right with Christ, reconciled to God in Christ. And so we have a lot of objections that come our way when we start to speak in those terms, exclusive terms, that God has an exclusive plan, that this is the plan and those plans are wrong. People will start saying things like this. Well, aren't all religions basically the same? They won't even ask the question. They'll assert that. I mean, religions are all basically doing the same thing. They're cleaning up your lives. They're telling you how to live morally. And in the end, as Oprah would say, aren't all roads eventually just leading to heaven anyway? I mean, you just get involved in a religion of your choice. You do what is good, what is generally accepted as good in our society, and God will reward you because, as most people understand, when you get to heaven, God's going to look at your life and see whether it's good or bad. If you're good, you're going to be let in. If you're not good, you're going to be excluded. And so any religion will get you there. You just need to find one, find one that you like, and you need to not be so uh, exclusive and dogmatic and claiming in your dogmatism that there's only 
one way. And one thing that they'll say and start to really tug on the emotions of your heart or their own heart saying, well, there can't be billions of non-Christians that are going to be lost. You can't tell me Christianity is the only way. I was sharing the gospel recently and I heard this very thing. That's the thing they say. All these people cannot be wrong. God cannot exclude all these people. And if you're saying Christianity is the only way, well, then you got Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and all these big religions of the world and they can't really all be lost. God can't condemn those who haven't heard. What about those that haven't even heard about Christianity? I heard that one probably 10 days ago. You clearly can't tell me that God is going to hold people accountable who haven't even been exposed to the preaching of the message that you're giving me right now. What about the man who lives out in the middle of nowhere, in the, in the outback of Australia or uh, the bush in Africa or somewhere where the gospel has never been? You can't say that those people are going to be condemned uh, when you speak in these absolute terms. Uh, Christianity, in essence, and the bottom line is, can't be the only way. And that's what they're saying. And they're saying that so that they can take your message and your call, as Acts 17 says, to repent. And they're going to say, I don't want to repent, and I don't want to put my trust in your Christ that you're presenting to me, because it cannot be the only way. So I'm going to reject it as even a way, and certainly not a way that I'm going to get involved in, because I'm claiming it can't be the only way. All right, well, let's think about this just in terms of comparing those statements with the nature of truth. We've talked about this, but let me review and at least summarize that when we speak of truth and truth claims, we're talking about what philosophers would call a correspondence theory of truth, that there is a theory of truth that says if we're going to make a truth claim, what we're saying is that that truth claim has some kind of correspondence with what is real and objective. And in other words, you need to make the distinction between what is objective and what is not objective. Reality, we would say, is something outside of ourselves. It is objective. You cannot have, as we often hear people say, become very popular in modern English, to talk about my truth. You can't really have your truth, because your truth cannot be personalized. Uh, You can definitely subscribe to something that may be true because the claim that you're making corresponds with reality, but you can't say it's true simply because it's something that I claim. And the distinction we tried to make early on in this series, and I think it was in week one actually we dealt with it, is we're dealing with two different kinds of claims. One is a claim of preference, and it may be a truthful statement about my subjective feelings. I think deep dish pizza is the best. I think orange sherbet is is good and, and is the best sherbet that they make. I, I, I like, you know, whatever it might be, this kind of, of car. My preference cannot be made to fall into a category that I say, well, that's a kind of truth that you can have, but everyone's going to disagree about it. You like that car. He likes this car. Uh, he likes that ice cream. I like this ice cream. We like this kind of pizza, and those guys like that kind of pizza, and that's what religion is. Religion is a subjective preference, and, and that's what people are saying. But Christianity is not giving you that option. Christianity, as we looked at in the first week of our series, is making an assertion about things that we think are objectively true. We're making a statement when we say something about Christianity, about heaven, about the afterlife, about God, about how to be right with God, about what sin is, about how to have your sins forgiven. We're saying something, we're claiming something, we're asserting something that we say has a connection with reality. Therefore, they can't say to us, if you're going to make a religious claim, well, that's a subjective claim, or that's a truth that can be your truth, but it doesn't have to be my truth because there's a different kind of truth, a category of truth that deals with science and facts and history, but religion is simply making religious truth claims, and those truth claims uh, can be whatever you want them to be. 
Uh, that we haven't left open to ourselves. And if you've jumped on in the end of this series, you might want to go back to the first week where we spent more time on this topic of the nature of truth. What we're saying in essence and very simply is conflicting claims about truth cannot all be true. In other words, conflicting truth claims, if you've got A and B, they cannot both be true if they are saying different things. Let's start at the baseline here. Our first topic that we tackled was, is there a God? You cannot come to the conclusion that there's not a God, and then someone say, well, I believe there is a God. Well, since we're talking about God, and that's a religious category, well, you can be right being an atheist, and I can be right being a theist. These are conflicting truth claims. There either is something we can define as God, or there's not something we can define as God. Those both cannot be true. Someone is right and someone's wrong because what we believe about truth is that it must correspond to reality. There either is a God objectively in reality or there's not a God. And those claims cannot both be held as true simply because you hold one and someone else holds something different. And we say, well, let's just both say that we're right. The Bible, for instance, is it God's revelation? Has God revealed his thoughts in the pages of this text? Has he codified and inscripturated his words, his thoughts, his propositional statements of truth to us in the pages of the Bible? Or he has not done that. And as we often talk about, is this man's best thoughts about God? Or is these, are these God's thoughts on paper? Or is this just fable and fiction, fantasy, the, the, the musings of, of lunatics? I mean, we've got to come to a conclusion about what the Bible is or it isn't. And if you say, well, I think the Bible is God's revelation on paper, and someone says, well, it's not, both of those statements can't be true. And there's plenty of religious systems that are going to fall into category A and some that are going to fall into category B. Just like in the most basic categories of God or no God, certainly people are falling into one of those two categories. They're both not right. Someone's right and someone's wrong. We talk about Jesus being God. You cannot at the same time say, well, that guy says Jesus is not God in the flesh. There is no incarnation that we celebrate here at Christmas every year, that this is not God who preexisted in all eternity, taking on human flesh and being born in a manger in Bethlehem. You can't say, well, that's true. Well, that's your religious truth claim, so that's true for you. But I don't think that God has in... Uh, enfleshed himself, has put on human flesh and become incarnate. I, I don't believe that. And, and either you're making an assertion that he did do it or he didn't do it, but they both can't be true. And when it comes to what we're saying to people, hey, you need to get your sins forgiven and be freed from the penalty of your sins. And here's the mechanism you trust in Christ. I cannot say trusting in Christ saves you and then have someone over there say, well, trusting in Christ does not save you and say, well, you're both right. At least if we're talking about the nature of the kind of claim, and we'll look at that more carefully. So conflicting truth claims is very basic, but it's important for us to recognize. It is, as philosophers have said, good philosophers have said, it's just common sense. The correspondence theory of truth is common sense. And it's common sense because this is the way you live in every area of your life until we start speaking of some things, like religion in particular, that we want to put into a category where you can have your truth and I can have my truth. Well, today, by the way, the absurdity of that has gone into much more than religion as you recognize, right? People are saying, this is my truth and your truth about all kinds of things that even 50 years ago or 25 years ago, no one would have ever said. But religion is one that most people have said, well, let's just say you can say this and say that because it's religion. Number four, the biblical truth claims. We want to summarize these just first by starting by quoting scriptures. And we could spend a lot of time in this, but we've got a long outline. So let me just quote some of the basic and central passages. And if you know these passages, I guess it will be a closed case in terms of what the Bible is claiming. John 14, 6. Many of you have that memorized, and if you don't, you should. And that is that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that's a very specific, assertive claim. This is what I am. And then he inverts it. And he says, hey,
hey, if you don't choose this, if you are not part of asserting this or affirming this, well, then you can't be right with God. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I'm the way. This is my exclusive claim about who I am. And if you reject that, you've got no other option because no one else is going to get you right with God. No one's going to give you access to God as a forgiven person, freed from the penalty of your sin and the exclusion that your sin should bring you. Well, that was the teaching of the New Testament as well. The apostles went out in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and they said exactly what Jesus said. Everything that Jesus said about himself and what he accomplished is the only mechanism and means to get your sins forgiven and to be saved from the penalty of your sins. Salvation, there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. These two statements, among others in Scripture, but these two central statements need to be in our minds a clear representation of what we're telling people when they say, I don't think you can say that Christianity is the only way. We're going to say the Bible at least presents itself that way. Jesus is recorded as saying that, and the preaching of the gospel is saying the same thing. There's only one way. There's only one way. As unpopular as that is, it's important for us to quote it, important for us to say it, and to stand on it, and not be swayed from saying it or standing on that truth. John three eighteen. just to give you a few more, two more, I guess. Whoever believes in him, Jesus speaking in the third person about himself, the Son of Man, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but, and inverting it, just to make clear that we're talking about an exclusive claim, whoever does not believe is condemned. And he's not only condemned eternally, he's condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John three eighteen. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Two verses earlier, you might remember, the most famous verse in the Bible for most non-Christians, God so loved the world. You can make that statement and say that to people, and it feels good to people because they sentimentalize the word love. Nevertheless, two verses later, you're going to say, if you don't respond rightly to that, according to Jesus, there's no other way. You trust in him, you're not condemned. You don't trust in him, you are condemned. That's an exclusive claim. That passage wraps up at the bottom of chapter 3 this way. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe or does not obey, because that's what the kind of believing we're talking about in the Bible, is trusting that results in following and obeying the precepts and principles of Christ. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And what's at stake? The wrath of God remains on him. You can't go anywhere in the New Testament and not find this very clear, exclusive claim. And let's summarize it in two words. Let's call it an absolute claim. In other words, it's a claim that is very clear about objective realities. In other words, you are going to be actually forgiven and you're going to be actually saved by Christ. That's an absolute claim. You do this and this will be the response. You trust in me even if you die, yet shall you live. That's the message of Christianity. And it's funny that I have to emphasize it so strongly in the modern era, I guess because people are so into their truth and subjective statements about, well, I have my truth, you have your truth, you have your religion, I have my religion, can't we just both be right? I have to emphasize something that didn't have to be emphasized quite so much, I suppose, in past generations, and that is that this is an absolute claim about an objective reality. It's also, as I've mentioned already, but let's just summarize it, letter B, it is an exclusive claim. It's an exclusive claim in that you can only be saved, you can only be forgiven by Christ. It's the only way. And I guess you could say, well, if it was an absolute claim, it would be much like in a sinking ship. You could say, well, here's a lifeboat, and it's an absolute claim. If you get in the lifeboat, you will be saved from the sinking ship. It could be an absolute claim, but not be an exclusive claim. But Christ gives us an absolute claim, and then he says, there's no other way off. There's no helicopter that's coming for you. There's no submarine that's going to pull up. You only have the lifeboat to get in, and that is the only way to get off of this ship. 
So it's an exclusive claim, and you can invert this, and it's false, which are the passages I've given to you. You trust in him, you will be saved. You don't, you're going to have the wrath of God abide on you. You're condemned. You believe in him, you'll have eternal life. You don't believe in him, don't trust him, don't obey him. You are condemned. That is the very basic definition of an exclusive claim. It's not only absolute, but it's exclusive. You cannot be, in other words, saved without Christ. That is the biblical claim. And I guess 50 years ago, and I guess you could go outside of the realm of evangelical or conservative biblical scholars that have fudged on this long ago, but in the last 50 years, people within the realm of evangelical theology Guys that used to say, well, Jesus is the only way, they would teach in seminaries and, and say it very emphatically, now have said just the opposite. And you've seen this move. You've seen as the absolute claims of Christianity, the hard edges, as I like to say, of the truth of the gospel, when those have been filed down, and as I've said and others like to say, when we've sentimentalized God as an emotional God, as an emotional dad who doesn't want his children to go to hell, that's how we see him. We can't imagine that God would allow this. We can't imagine that God would let the sincere Buddhist go to hell or the sincere and devout Hindu go to hell. Then all of a sudden we will say, well, maybe this is not an absolute and an exclusive claim. And many books have been written about this. It's uh, under the heading of inclusivism or universalism. These are the terms you'll find in books that are written about this topic. But we need to recognize there's really no wiggle room in Scripture, even though tomes have been written to try and prove otherwise. Everyone has understood this from the beginning of the New Testament. I say everyone, the core of people who take the statements of Scripture seriously. An absolute and exclusive claim of salvation being found in Christ alone. The only way you can be saved. Again, it feels funny to say that, but you need to say that in your evangelism. And I think most people intuitively know that if you come with a Bible in your hand, so to speak, that they expect you to say that. And I don't think you should disappoint them. You need to say that. It's the only way to be saved is in Christ. It is an absolute and exclusive claim. Well, everyone's going to say, because we do want to emotionalize this whole thing, well, what about sincere people? And I just want to think this through from a logical perspective. Just like someone would say the correspondence theory of truth is a common sense view. I say the same thing about the reality of any absolute and exclusive claim. If it's authoritative and we can trust that it's coming from a reliable source, then we can say it doesn't make sense that you and I can differ about our acceptance of that truth claim and expect to have the benefit without going through the portal of the facts. In other words, I have to submit to the absolute and exclusive claim or I can't have the benefits that come with that claim. And I can believe something different, but I can't change the reality. And that works across the board in every area of life if you think it through as it relates to objective facts. No matter how ardent your belief is, no matter how strong your belief is, no matter how sincere your belief is, you cannot, by your simple belief, change reality. Objective reality is not changed by your sincerity. You can say about preferences that your ideas of what you prefer can change. Sure, you can say that all you want. You can prefer a lot of things in terms of what you dress, what you drive, what you eat. And you can say, well, I've had my taste changed through time. But you, can have, you cannot have your taste changed about objective realities. I mean, you can, but it's not going to change those realities. So options to believe are not equally beneficial. To say, well, I like having options because I like this more than that. I like this preference over that preference. You can say that about things that simply relate to your subjective desires. But you cannot say that options and belief about facts 
you see, are equally beneficial. And that's what people say. When you say all religions are basically the same and all roads lead to, all roads lead to heaven, which is the popular sentimental view of popular culture, you've got to recognize that doesn't work in everyday life. We don't say that. And in the book I wrote, the first chapter on, the last book I wrote on, um, I think it was the last book I wrote at least, on 10 mistakes people make about heaven, hell, and the afterlife, I illustrate this with your, your potato chip aisle. You can go to your potato chip aisle and you can get whatever you want. And you've got all kinds of options. The options seem to be endless. And everyone is going to rally around their particular, I don't know if you rally around it, but you're going to have your particular brand that you like and you're going to say, this is what I like and I'm going to you know, exclude the others. And to me, this is beneficial to me and I like it. And that's fine. If you're talking about your preference and your tastes, that's one thing. Whether you're talking about corn chips, potato chips, cheese puffs, tortilla chips, pita chips, kale chips, whatever you like, endless options. But if you're talking about objective facts, the way things work. Like, for instance, what it takes for a human being to breathe underwater. If you say, let's go scuba diving. We're going to go scuba diving, and I'm saying to you, well, we're going to go underwater. Here's the objective facts to oxygenate your blood. You're not designed to be able to breathe in water into your lungs. You need oxygen. If I say, great, the good thing is I'm going to give you lots of options, just like in the potato chip aisle. You can pick whatever you'd like to put in your, your, your tank. So in this tank, there's tear gas. In this tank, there's iced tea. In this tank, you've got hand soap. And in this tank, you've got oxygen. Isn't it great to have a lot of choices about scuba diving and how to scuba dive? You'd say, well, I, I don't like the choice in this case. I actually would like to have whatever is going to actually solve the problem. And if the problem is I don't have access to oxygen underwater unless I have it artificially supplied... Well, then you're going to say, what I want in my tank is the thing that's going to be able to keep me alive. That's an objective reality. I don't want a lot of options. Matter of fact, I only want one option, the option that's going to work. And that's how people today fail to correspond that kind of simple illustration to religion. I want this religion, and I think it's going to solve my problem. And my problem, at least intuitively for most people, depending on how much of natural theology and natural revelation they're willing to adopt in their life, they're going to say, I feel like my, I'm guilty. I have a conscience problem. I feel like there's a God out there, and I, I want to make sure I'm right with that God. And I want a place that God has made that's good and not bad, and it's got pleasurable things and satisfying things and not disappointing things and corrupting things and painful things and suffering and all the things we talked about the last couple sessions we were together. Well, if that intuitively is pressing on someone's mind. They want to say, well, I want this option and I want to be able to solve my problems with this. And you want to solve your problems with that. Well, you just make your decision. If that's a real objective problem, there really is a God. If there's a thing called sin, if the conscience stricken person really is responding to something that is really falling short of their creator's standard, well, then we have to say, what will solve that problem? There needs to be an objective solution to that problem. If you've got a problem and you need surgery, let's say your brain, you need brain surgery and you've got to get brain surgery. I say, great, as I'm checking you in for your pre-op appointment, I say, we have some options for you. I've got a welder that can work on you. I have a lawyer standing by that can do your brain surgery. I've got a really great barista, got a lot of great skills. And then I've got a brain surgeon that can also work on your brain. I think everyone's going to know that they don't want choice when it comes to saying, well, I'm going to have a self-styled decision here. I'm going to have my own preference here. And my preference is I really like 
baristas. They're really nice, and I want that barista to work on my brain. You want someone who's going to apply the right solutions to the problems that you face. You don't want choice. You don't believe in those contexts in relativism, that you can have what you want, and I can have what I want to solve my objective problem in some subjective, preferential way. We need an objective solution to an objective problem. And that's what Christianity is trying to claim. It is claiming. It's not trying to claim it. It claims it very clearly. And your belief in your barista, your belief in your lawyer, your belief in your welder is not going to help you through your problem with your ventricles in your brain. Your belief in hand soap or your love of whatever it might be that you, iced tea that you love so much, is not going to solve your problem of needing to oxygenate your blood when you're underwater. In essence, a good line for you to remember when you're sharing the gospel with people is trust is only as good as what you put it in. That's, is, that's all you can present to people when it comes to objective illustrations of brain surgery or scuba diving. Right? You can trust all you want in holding your, your tank of iced tea as you go into the boat and dive into the water. But your trust in that, your love of that, your preference for that cannot solve your problem. It doesn't benefit you to have a lot of choices. Matter of fact, it's a bad thing for you to have a lot of choices. If you're trusting in your welder, you're trusting in your lawyer for brain surgery, your trust is no good if it's misplaced. Your trust is only as good as what you put your trust in. Well, here's the biblical claim, of course. John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26 reminds us that our ultimate problem is death, which is the consequence of sin. The law of sin and death. That's the problem. I'm bound inextricably to the problem of I am a sinner. And because of my sin, I have a penalty to pay. Part of it is physical death. Another part of it is spiritual death or relational death. And that is a problem that needs to be solved. And so at a funeral of his friend, Jesus says to his sister, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm not only going to fix the problem of your body being reconstituted and re-enlivened, but I'm going to give you the good that you don't have in this world. I'm going to give you life, as Jesus liked to call it, like the Old Testament liked to call it. I give you life. And if you believe in me, if you trust in me, that's the portal. And I've said already, I am the exclusive means of that. He said that throughout his ministry. Come to me, the bread of life. I'm the living water. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe me, even if you die, you physically die, yet shall you live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, you're never going to die. And then he asked, you got a decision to make. Do you believe this? And of course she says, well, I believe in the resurrection. Everybody's going to be resurrected in the end. She's just concerned about her brother who had died. But Jesus is making, again, a reminder, a claim here, reminding us in his claim that there's a real problem that needs a real solution. And there are a lot of religions out there. And people will say, well, if you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you carry into the next life. If your problem is some kind of of terminal brain problem, well, you better pick the right thing. If you're going to go scuba diving, you better pick the right thing if you're going to survive. And Jesus says, you're about to pass through the portal of death. You better be hanging on to the right thing. There's an objective solution, just like if there is, and I illustrate it in the book this way, a sinking ship. You better find something that's buoyant that's going to get you off of that. And if there's only one thing that can provide that in one lifeboat, then you better take that lifeboat. And you can't sit around and say, well, I really wish there were more options. You can say that all you'd like. But if there is an option, you ought to be grateful for the option. And if it's an exclusive and absolute claim of an option, then you better take that. And you better not say, well, I'd really like to live in a world where there's more choices, like my preferences for potato chips or ice cream. The biblical claim couldn't be clear. Jesus is saying, I can solve this problem. And in the New Testament, of course, it says there's proof that he can solve the problem. In particular, our death problem, which was caused by our sin problem, was reversed by a sinless one who conquered the problem of death. 
Christ hadn't been raised, if he didn't have that, well then your faith would be futile and you'd still be in your sins. But we're banking on something. As Paul says later at the end of his life, he says, I know the one I've believed. I've entrusted my life to him. And I'm confident in the fact that I've got the right solution here because he's given us proof of it. He was confident about the solution because the solution had proven itself. In particular, if I want to live after I die, if I want real life and blessing, I should follow the glorified one who after his death rose again and said, if you trust in me, I'll get you through this portal into the next life without all the problems of pain and sin and suffering and disease and all the things that the Bible claims and most people intuitively through natural revelation long for. Yeah, well, what about all these religions? Well, let me just make this clear as though you needed a reminder of it. Different religions make conflicting assertions. I mean, I just want to illustrate that and think that through for a minute because that is what you cannot deny when everyone wants to sit around and echo the Oprah sentiment of our society and that is, well, choose Hinduism, choose Buddhism, be a Sikh, you know, be a Zoroastrian, uh, be a Jehovah Witness, be a Mormon, be whatever you want. Just be a good person, be sincere, and it'll all work out. And the Bible's saying, well, look, here's something very true that I'm going to tell you about, like who God is. The Bible's going to say, here is a personal God that you need to relate to who made you in his image. He made you in his image with intellect, emotion, and will. And he's a triune being, triune being because he's in eternal fellowship. He sent his second person, the second person of the Godhead to solve our problem by taking on humanity. That is what we're dealing with, a God who exists, who's personal and triune. You can pick up another religious system like Christian science and they can say, okay, the God that we need to relate to, if you need to relate to him at all, is an impersonal force. Not a person, he's, he's, a, he's a thing, an it. And, and you can say, well, those are conflicting claims about the nature of God. They both might say, well, there is a God, but now you've got religious systems conflicting in what they're claiming God is. Jesus, for instance, in the Bible, Jesus is a divine Messiah. He was all the expectations of the Old Testament And he brought his deity to bear through his ministry. He said he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament lead up to this. New Testament then explains who he is and provides all the benefits, at least articulates those benefits to us in the New Testament. That is who Christ is. Even Jehovah Witnesses, under the banner of Christianity, as people would like to put them, they'd say, well, wait a minute. He's not a divine, eternal Messiah. He's a created being. He's Michael an archangel. He had a beginning. And you're saying, well, those are two different claims, two different things. And one is true and one is not. And that's the point we've tried to make about the nature of truth. Christ's work. The Bible says Christ was crucified and raised for our sins. If the person that you're sharing with says, well, it doesn't matter if you're a a Muslim or a Christian, what does it matter? Well, it matters because if Jesus is the mechanism of our salvation, we've got a claim in the Bible about who he is. And then you've got Islam saying, well, he wasn't even crucified. And he certainly wasn't resurrected. I mean, that's the heart of the message of the gospel. We say there is a God. He's a personal triune God. Some religious groups say, no, he's not. He's, a, he's an impersonal force. People say, well, here's who Jesus is. And other people will say, well, that's not who Jesus is. Say, this is what Christ did. Other people say, well, that's not what Christ did. Other religious groups. Salvation. The Bible says you're saved by trusting in Christ. I've read you some basic passages already. We've got a name given among men. We've got to be saved. We've got to put our trust in him. If you trust in him, even if you die, you're going to live. That's the claim of the Bible. He's finished all the work that makes us right and qualified for this future inheritance. Hinduism will say, no, that's not how it works. You go out, you do good, you stockpile good karma so that you can end this cycle of reincarnation and then you can be absorbed into the kind of impersonal nothingness of what God is, this great spirit. And so that's the goal. 
is this kind of infinitude, this, this sense of, of, of absorption into the divine. Well, those are two different ways to get to two different places to solve the same problem. The problem of this life, the problem of all that's wrong in this world, the problem of what ought not to be. Well, they're painting a different picture of what ought to be. They're painting a different picture of how to get there. Just examples, obviously. But you need to think that through when someone says, well, all religions are basically the same. Well, you need to say, well, they are clearly asserting conflicting assertions. They're asserting different things about reality. I want to break this into two types of religion. I just want to make this clear through illustration and some other things. Number one, let me say this. The Bible would give us a picture of a way to get right with God, to be bound with God. That's what religion means, to be in this connection with God. And the Bible would say there's a kind of religion that we need to understand is humanly constructed. Specifically, there are people speculating about God in the afterlife. It is, as I often say, in terms of a choice that I hope that you do not choose about the Bible, that the Bible is man's best thoughts about God. Well, I'm saying, well, that's not the case. It's God's, God's mind on paper. Well, man's best thoughts about God, what you have, if you have that as a true statement about a religious system, is you have a humanly constructed religion. They're sitting down and musing on and thinking about and speculating on and guessing about what God is, what the afterlife is, what heaven should be, as I just said about Hinduism and Buddhism as well. The Bible says there's lots of those options out there. As Colossians 2.23 says, they might have the appearance of wisdom and they promote really what is nothing other than, it's a good phrase, self-made religion. It's a kind of self-made way for me to get connected with God. And they do it through things that make them seem to be so wise, like asceticism, severity of the body. But they're really no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, which is a real concern in Colossians that he ramps up into chapter 3. But the point is, real conversion, really solving the problem of sin, not just in terms of my judicial standing with God, but my practice, all of that is not helped by a man-made, self-made religion. That's a self-made religion and that people are giving their best thoughts and speculations about God. And it looks really impressive. You go to some foreign country, you see the monks walking around in their saffron robes. And you say, well, that's really devout. Look at what they do. And they're praying all the time and lighting candles. And it seems very religious. And some that deny themselves and they fast and they do all these things. You think, well, that seems like a, a really noble thing. And they seem very sincere about it. But the Bible would say it falls into the category, if it's not the kind of religion we're about to look at, into a humanly constructed religion that's a lot of human speculation about God in the afterlife. Sadly, and and I don't, I mean, you just need to keep this in view. How we communicate this, I think, needs to be judicially done in your conversations. But you need to know it going into your conversations about the exclusivity of Christianity with non-Christians. And that is that these religious systems, all the way back to the very beginning, the Bible would say, are aided by God's spiritual enemies. God has a entire class of beings that were split uh, not quite in half, of people that have rebelled. I say people because they have intellect, emotion, and will, though they're not encased or enmeshed in human, tactile, objective, corporeal physicality, these angelic beings, they are now working, the Bible would tell us, to pull people away from the answer that God is giving us to their ultimate problem of sin. Matter of fact, they were part of the temptation. They weren't just part of it. They were the source of the temptation in the garden. But they are constantly out there, according to the Bible, all the way back to Leviticus, in giving us uh, a sense that they're at work to promote this kind of humanly constructed religion. For instance, in Leviticus 17, verse 7, there was a kind of idolatry going on in that day, um, and it lasted for a long time, of worshiping uh, a goat. 
And this was part of the uh, religion of the people of ancient Mesopotamia and um, ancient, the ancient Near East, I guess, more broadly. Leviticus 7.17 is an interesting little phrase here in the middle of this discussion, talking about the fact that they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. It's an interesting statement. There's a real God. You should be devoted to him. You should find your life and your forgiveness and your sustenance in him. He's laid out his rules. And there's people out there whoring. That's the picture, right? Committing spiritual adultery, going after this idolatry of the the goat. And he's saying, as he adds this phrase, they're goat demons. There's something demonic about this that draws people uh, away from the truth of solving our problem with God through what God has revealed to us. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And these are things, even as it says later, they have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And the point is that these are motivated, aided by, prompted by, fueled by demonic spirits. Doesn't mean that every false religion is involved in the dark side of what we would see as the gratuitous darkness of Satanism. We dealt with that in a past Compass Night. We talked about that as a specific brand of rebellion against God. But it's a narrow band because it's it grates against the natural theology and the natural revelation that most of us feel. We think you ought to be into something good. You're not signing up just you know randomly to follow Anton LaVey or the Church of Satan or, or what have you. Um, so, But yet the Bible says even the good-looking religions are um, pulling people away from the truth and behind it is something, as I put it, a religious system humanly constructed but aided by spiritual enemies of God. Interesting little phrase here. It's to do a word study on it. It's, it's the only reference we have of it in the New Testament. So it's only once in the New Testament, but it's a word here that's translated in most English translations as bewitched. Speaking of people that have looked at the biblical Christianity of substitutionary atonement and trusting in Christ alone for salvation, and these people now are putting their own self-styled spin on it. Uh, the Bible calls that iniquity. They take the truth and they twist it and they say, well, we're going to do it this way. Right? As, as Peter said later, it's like taking the truths of what Paul wrote and they twist it to their own destruction. And he uses this word, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell, an evil spell on you to believe this? Well, these are human beings teaching it. They talk about God. They talk about Christ. They talk about salvation. They talk about heaven. They talk about all these things that Paul is preaching. But he says, well, there's something spiritually dark about this. I guess the passage you may have thought of first is 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Oh, maybe it's not. I don't know. But when you speak of evangelism in 2 Corinthians 4, the goal is to see people's eyes recognize the glory of God in Christ, and we want to give them that solution, as he's going to say in the next chapter, chapter 5, that is going to reconcile them to God. We want to plead with them to reconcile to God. Well, the problem with the people we're sharing with, it says that the God of this world has, there's an active verb here, blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So they reject Christ. And the text here says that there is a spiritual element to it. God of this world, small g, we're talking about Satan, the devil, taking people's minds and preventing them, working actively to prevent them. Well, it's not that he's making them non-religious. Most people are intuitively religious and they are by nature religious beings. And there's lots of options for you, lots of religions out there. But if they are not the biblical religion, if they're not the God's revealed religion, well, then they're self-constructed, but they're not 
constructed simply by men sitting around and women figuring out what they think about God. These are aided by, the Bible would say, spiritual enemies. So again, this is an aspect of what we're dealing with in our own minds when we have people saying, well, what about Buddhism, Islam? What about the Sikhs? What about these other religious systems? I mean, we've got to realize that the options on the shelf, when you look at potato chips, you'd say, well, that's no big deal. Pick whatever one you want. But if you're looking at canisters to to go diving with, to breathe in, those become insidious options if there's only one that works. And the more you have, the more options you have with great paint and good fonts and, you know, calligraphy on the side of it. It becomes now uh, a spiritual battle. And you need to know that going in. All right. Second type, divinely revealed religion. And I want to use that word revealed, and I want to emphasize that word, because what we're claiming out the Bible, and I said this by way of illustration earlier, is that it is God's revelation. And and I don't know that there's anything more powerful for you to get into your mind as the core of what we're doing when we're doing evangelism. We're helping people see what God himself has revealed, not in our emotions, not in our feelings. This is what God has revealed to us objectively. Here's the truth. He's given us the truth. God's thoughts disclosed. If you go all the way back to our bibliology compass night to try and define revelation, we use this phrase. It is the disclosing. Divine revelation is disclosing that which would otherwise be unknown. That is what we are claiming and what the Bible claims about itself. A disclosure of that which would otherwise be unknown. Wrong passage there. You can ignore that. I know I've done this before, but I thought I'd do it on the screen. I've got something for you in this box. Some of you know me. What do you think it is? It's a Taco Bell. Taco Bell what? A Taco Bell gift card. Okay. It's what? A what? A Bible. Hmm? Come on. A Porsche. A what? A what? What did you say? A blue Porsche. The keys to my house? A new house. A what? A book? A workbook. A what? An ice machine. A what? I can't hear what she said. I did. I make, makes good ice. What's that? Yeah, it could be a computer. Okay. A shower head. Could be a shower head. What if it's Compass Bible Institute? Yeah, could be that. If a non-Christian is trying to figure out who God is, God has to reveal himself. When we're giving the plan of salvation to people, we're giving them what we call in our bibliology series, special revelation, specific revelation, right? Revelation is disclosure. It cannot be known unless it is disclosed. What you've just done right there is exactly what the world is doing based on natural revelation. Natural revelation is we know something about God. Now, what would he do? See, natural revelation is what you perceive about God. We'll look at that in a a minute in more detail. And everyone's got that as a baseline. It's responded to in different ways. It might be suppressed in different ways, but everyone gets a sense, just like I'm trying to do with you. You know me. Some of you know me better than others. And just like in the world, some people perceive God through natural revelation and general revelation in ways that are better than others. Some of you know me best. My wife over there, tell me, Carlin, what's in the box? What's in the box? What do you think's in the box? You've known me for years. What's in the box? What is it? You're a trash can. If your life depended on it, right, you'd really want to know. You'd want to know the truth. Here's what you need to realize about what God has said about humanity. No one seeks after the truth, right? This is what people, they don't want to do it. And yet God has revealed the truth. He's revealed the truth in scripture. And here is the presentation of it. It's one click away to show you what I put in the box. One click away. And all you would have to do is access that. 
and know what Mike put in the box. All you can do without that disclosure and accessing that disclosure is speculate and guess. That's exactly what people do. And people say, well, you know what heaven would be to me? Being absorbed into this eternal spirit. You know what I think? I think this is what God would do if he were to do what I think. He would He would construct reality this way. He would have this criteria to get into heaven. Now, really, if there was a gun to your head right now, and I said, you've got 15 seconds, and if you don't get this right, what's in the box, you are. I'm going to kill you. Now, guess what's in the box? And you have to be right. The only way you would have any assurance is that if you looked into my PowerPoint, if you let, if I, I click the button and you got to see what's in the box. So everyone in the room, you don't have to say it. I know this isn't an interactive church. I can't even get my wife to guess anything. I, I want you to picture in your mind what Mike would put in a box if he had to hide something and present it to you graphically on a screen. What would he put there? That, I want you to think, what would it be? This is how futile human-constructed religion is. It's you sitting around and guessing based on natural revelation what you think about God. And some of that's right. What you think about me is right. You might even have a really good picture of the divine attributes, as it says in, in Romans 1, that have been clearly seen. And you perceive that, but you haven't sought the truth. You don't have the truth unless you access Revelation And revelation is what would not otherwise be known unless it were disclosed. How do you get saved? I wouldn't know. I would know something about my guilt. I would know something about God's symmetry and God's beauty and God's holiness and God's purity. I can catch that from my conscience and creation, but I don't know unless it's disclosed. And what your friends want to do is say, everyone's just fine to guess. So you got the thing in your mind? Well, that's your truth. And people say, well, you can't really know. You can't know. You can know if there is a divinely revealed religion. Every other religion is humanly constructed. Just exactly what we're playing right now, this stupid little game. But I'm prolonging it and making it painful for you so that you don't ever forget it. I want you to feel the pain of saying, that was really awkward and uncomfortable. For a long time, he made us try to guess what was in the box. You got it? What's in in your brain? You're guessing now. And your life depends on what I put in the box. What graphic would Mike put in the box? What, what in the world would it be? You want to guess. Here's what I put in another box. That would, be, that would be a good guess. Let me reveal it to you. Are you ready? And if your life depended on it, you would need to know this information from me. I would need to tell you because you're not a soul that knows what's in this box. I've told no one what's in the box. And at some point, we need to create that kind of appetite in non-Christians. You have to want to know what God has disclosed. And you know what? We saw that in Acts chapter 2. The preaching of the gospel got to the place of their conscience, and they said, what must we do? What is the revelation from God? What does he tell us to do? All right, here's what's in the box. Two dogs riding a motorcycle. That's what was on my mind today. Now, once you know it, it might not be, as you look back on it, all that unusual. If you think about me, some of you follow me on social media. Did you see any of my posts yesterday on social media? How disturbing those posts were yesterday? Yeah, it haunted me. Those pictures of dogs, wrestling dogs, dogs riding scooters. So this is what I dreamed of last night, dogs riding motorcycles, (laughs) which you wouldn't know unless I 
disclosed it to you. Okay, as uncomfortable as that was, don't ever forget it. What we're dealing with is divinely revealed religion. We've dealt with this in weeks three and four. It is inscribed in words. You can even use that word that we've invented. I don't even know. I don't know if I've read it anywhere. Inscripturated. He's put it in writing. He's inscripturated his truth in propositional statements, as Francis Schaeffer used to like to say. It is propositional. It's there in objective terms. That's why we believe in a verbally inspired, a plenary inspired, an inerrant, infallible Bible in that God has revealed in the original manuscripts his word, his mind on paper. He's inscribed it in words. And again, we have to prove this. This always gets back to our view of the Bible. He authenticated that this is his revelation by several things. But the key thing that we've dealt with in this series is, is predictive prophecy. If he has done this and no other book does that, then you cannot say on the bookshelf, when you look at all the things, the polycanon, the Book of Mormon, you look at the Quran, you look at the Bible, and you say, well, it's all like potato chips in a, in a supermarket aisle. You say, no, there's one that claims to be a revelation from God, and it's authenticated with predictive prophecy. There's not another bag of chips on the shelf that does that. And that's what we're saying. The Bible is a revelation from God, which other books claim to be, Some don't. Some claim to be man's best thoughts about God, and you ought to believe it because we're smarter than you are. But then there's some that claim to be divine revelation. The Quran claims to be divine revelation. Guess what it doesn't have? It doesn't have the imprimatur of God. It doesn't have the sign that it is God's book. And the sign that it is God's book is not only the prophetic characters are said to have, at risk of their own life and martyrdom, had performed miracles in the process of them doing it, but the miracle that's ongoing and objectively sussed out and and, and surmised is predictive prophecy. And we're not going to review all the proofs of that, but we can say that's what we're claiming. We've got a book that is unique. We've got a bag of chips, if you will, on the shelf that is the oxygen you need to get through this life and into the next without punishment of your sins. Divinely revealed religion. I'm not saying that humanly constructed religions are all wrong in the sense that they have no truth in them. Humanly constructed religions echo some truth. There's no doubt about that. Why? Because as I said, true assertions are reflecting natural revelation. Is there a God, a personal God? Well, a lot of religions say there is a personal God. Some religions say it's an impersonal God. Natural revelation would say if you're better at understanding natural revelation, general revelations we sometimes call it, well then you would know God is a personal God. And so a lot of religions in their human construction will say that. True assertions reflect natural revelation. Not every religion is lies from top to bottom. It's learned from creation and conscience is what we're saying. Creation gives us a sense of God. Conscience gives us a sense of truth. And all of those things can be reflected in the religion of your neighbor who is not following biblical Christianity. Satan's agenda is advanced by echoing some of that truth. Think it through. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. There are false apostles out there, and he just described them. And such men are false apostles. They're deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Now, again, how you articulate and disseminate this information to your non-Christian friends, that's going to be hard sometimes for them to process, but it better be in the forefront of your mind. Other religious systems, other groups that we might call cult groups, options to biblical revelation found in Scripture, articulated in Scripture by the, the, the understanding of Scripture being our authority, God's revelation on paper. we got to know that those options, as nice as the bag is printed, as nice as the calligraphy on the, on the canister is, those things are always going to try to look like the original 
At least that's aided that the agenda of pulling people's wool over their eyes, so to speak, blinding the eyes of the unbelieving, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, is aided by putting truth in false religion. Therefore, when you see groups and you say, well, they don't teach a biblical gospel, but man, they got some really good family values. Or look at those monks. They sure do have a devotion that we don't have. Or look at the Muslims praying five times a day. I'm just hardly trying to get my app out twice a day to pray. Well, you think, well, that's good, right? Is it good to pray? Yes, it's good to pray. Is it good to have family values? Yes, of course that's good. Those things are strategic in terms of the enemy's goal of giving you an option so that you can suck in to your lungs hand soap instead of the life-saving message of the gospel, to use our illustration. So is there truth in world religions? Yes. But if you take the message of faith in Christ alone, that's the point. By faith alone, being saved by that mechanism, that, that call to put our trust in Christ. Well, then, as Galatians 1 says, you can get that from Michael, the archangel himself. If an angel from heaven gives you, and you still need to dismiss him as anathema, con- condemn him to hell. That's what anathema means, because you've tampered with the gospel. There's only one good news. There's only one gospel, as we've talked about throughout this series. But what about those who never hear? I mean, there's people that never hear. And, you know, what about them? The claim is used often. You've heard this, right? Many times. Back to my illustration. If the boat is sinking and there is a lifeboat, and I call you to get on the lifeboat, and you're on deck seven, and you ask, well, what about the people on deck 12? Have they heard yet? Well, that's a very compassionate thing for you to ask. But should it make any difference in terms of your response to the message of getting saved if this is the only objective, absolute, and exclusive means to have your sin problem solved? Shouldn't matter. Doesn't mean you shouldn't care, but it shouldn't matter. Shouldn't matter in terms of your response. Well, if you say to someone, well, there's an exclusive, absolute claim of Christianity found in Christ alone, you're going to have people say, well, if those people are lost, well, then I don't want anything to do with this. And the assumption is those people are innocent and they just didn't hear. And I'm going to say, well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Number one, let's start with this, letter A. All people are sinners by birth. We'll have to do this quickly, but you, you, you understand this, right, from Romans 5. Everybody is born on a ship that is already sinking. So everyone is a recipient, seems like a positive word, but it's not, a recipient of the consequences of sin that began before they ever entered existence on this planet. Psalm 51.5, as David says, as he's thinking about his sin, his conscious sin, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And this is not a statement about his mom's sex life or that he was some illegitimate child. This is a statement about his tendency from birth. As Psalm 58 verse 3 says, the wicked, and of course everyone is, and David is admitting that in Psalm 51, are estranged from the womb. We're not in sync with God. We're not reconciled to God from the very beginning. And we go astray, they go astray, the wicked do, and we're all in that category, from birth. And one of the clear things you can see that people do immediately, as soon as they can learn to do it, is they deceive. Even an infant, you know, will deceive even before they can talk to try and make sure that they advance their own agenda and their own way. Ephesians 2, 3, to put it in another term, all of us, we were all once, we lived in the passion of our flesh, we did what we wanted, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, whatever we thought, whatever we felt. And we were by nature, this is by nature, by the creation and the inception and the development and the pattern and the process and the, the involvement of human beings in all that they do, we are, are, we are all by nature, children of wrath, of God's just punishment. Everyone is by nature like the rest of mankind. Those who have heard, those who haven't heard, everyone is a sinner by birth. That's a good place to start. Secondly, all the morally cognizant 
are sinners by choice. So I'm talking about people all over the world, the person that you're so concerned about on deck 11, the person that lives in the outback and the aborigine in Australia, they're all sinners by birth. And then here's the thing. They get to a place where we can say they are morally cognizant. They have an awareness of moral right and wrong. Then they become sinners by choice. As I illustrate in that chapter one, all roads lead to heaven. It's as though we're on a ship that is sinking and it started to sink when Adam and Eve, they they took a big drill and they drilled a giant hole in the hull of the ship. And then we are all born. And once we can get a grip on a drill ourselves and put a bit in it, we start drilling into the hull of the ship as well. And so we're contributing to the sinking of this ship, the morally cognizant. The descriptions of the morally cognizant can be found all throughout the Bible, but we can start in the beginning, Genesis chapter 2. It started with a test, and the test was the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here you have a decision to make. You can now make a cognizant moral choice. God, the authority has said, don't do it, don't eat of it. The day you eat of it, you surely die. Here you have an option and a choice. Well, they eat of it in chapter 3, verse 7. And what happens? Their eyes are opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There was a sense of self-awareness and guilt that they had that was reflected in, which is profound, and you could write a book on this, at least an article, is their awareness of their nakedness and their shame, which, by the way, is a lot like children, little children. You got friends over and you're having pizza and talking about church and the crazy thing Pastor Mike did on the PowerPoint, and your your one-year-old waddles in stark naked. Now, your 16-year-old doesn't do that. If he does, he turns around quickly and leaves embarrassed, but little children do. They have no sense of their own nakedness. And there is this awareness of their own shame, even in the external illustration, if you will, the expression of it in this sense of nakedness and clothing. Y'all came with clothes on tonight. And it wasn't because it was cold. You came on with clothes because of that cognizant awareness of your own shame. And that picture, at least in Genesis chapter two and three, is one that reminds us of a knowledge of good and evil, of what is right and appropriate and what is not. Isaiah seven sixteen, speaking of the child in this great prophecy, at least the near fulfillment of it with the child that's born. Before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. In other words, there is a time when a person gets morally cognizant and can refuse to do the wrong thing. He's making a conscious volitional choice. And then you can choose to do the right thing. Well, before that happens in the lifespan of this child, how many years is that? Well, you tell me, right? You've had kids, you've had grandkids. Well, by that time, he says, the two kings that you dread are be deserted. It has to do with the historical context. But the point is, against the backdrop of this measure, measuring of someone having a moral conscience, they recognize what's right and wrong. Moral choices are judged by the amount of knowledge. And we'll start with this as a principle because I'm trying to assuage the concern of the non-Christian who says, well, I don't want to get in the lifeboat because I'm afraid that if I do, I'm condemning the guy on deck 11 who hasn't heard. And I'm saying, well, number one, everyone is a sinner by birth. They're on this ship because they're part of the family of Adam and Eve. And then if they're morally cognizant, they're actively drilling holes in the, in, the, in the hole of the ship. So we understand that they're culpable in that regard. And based on what they know, they're going to be judged on that knowledge. Luke chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, as Jesus comes on the scene and does miracles in the streets of places like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, he says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day, speaking of the day of judgment, for Sodom, which was a notoriously evil and wicked city that did not refuse evil and did not choose good, but it'd be better for them on the day of judgment than for that town. 
Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you would be done in Tyre and Sidon, these notorious pagan idolatrous nations that were to the north of Israel, well, if they had been done in their streets, well, they would have repented a long time ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So at judgment, you're going to have a greater responsibility because of the greater knowledge that you had. And that's helpful for them, I would think, in a non-Christian discussion, to say, well, you do know, not only is everyone born into a family that's sinking, but they are active participants, if they're morally cognizant, of that drilling holes in the ship. They are contributing to the sin problems. They are sinners by choice. We need to know this, that based on what you're concerned about, who knows what, there is a distinction in judgment based on what they know. It will, think about it, be less punishment for the people who are debauched and sexually perverse in Sodom back in that day because of what they did not know. And it'll be worse for those in Chorazin and Bethsaida because they were exposed to the truth that they rejected. James 3.1, of course, here's just the principle. We quoted this not long ago when we were talking about the concept of God's judgment. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's the principle again. The more you know, the greater the judgment that you have. Luke 12, 47 and 48. That servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, he knew it, he understood it, he had knowledge about it, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and and did what was deserving a beating will receive a light beating. For everyone to whom much is given, speaking here of information, of him much will be required and of him to whom they've been entrusted much, much like Romans 2, the Israelites have been entrusted the oracles of God, well, they'll be, they'll be demanded more of them. So the principle of you being concerned, the principle of judgment of the person on deck seven, you need to recognize, well, as we've said in the discussion about God's judgment, God is a just God. He's a right God. By, by definition, justice means he will do the right thing. You need to realize that all of the punishment of the non-Christian is based on the knowledge that they had. Doesn't mean they're not sinners. Doesn't mean that they don't deserve a beating, as the illustration in this parable says. It's just that it will be adjudicated and mitigated and adjusted based on the knowledge that they had. Well, I'm glad then because the guy in Aboriginal Australia, I'm really glad that you're saying that because then they they won't be judged because they have no knowledge. Well, the Bible says that all have knowledge. All have knowledge. All the and I put it in quotes because all certainly has to be defined by the morally cognizant. They have knowledge. By natural revelation, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, Gentiles, they don't have the law. They don't know what the rules are, but they do by nature the things that the law requires. Well, they are a law unto themselves. They know that. They recognize by their own conscience that I've done the right thing here. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse, that means they've done wrong and they know it, or excuse them. That means they've done right. And even though someone accuses them of doing wrong, they excuse themselves. And they know that their judgment is just on the day that God judges them. According to my gospel, God that judges the secrets of men's hearts. Therefore, no one's going to say, I didn't know. Well, you knew something. You may have not known as much as they knew in Chorazin, but you knew something in Sodom, and you sinned against that knowledge. And because you sinned against that knowledge, you deserve judgment. The Bible says everyone deserves judgment. Everyone deserves judgment who's morally cognizant. And so they are without excuse, which is the whole theme of Romans chapters 1 and 2. His eternal power, divine nature, clearly perceived ever since the beginning of creation. Perceived by who? Those that are morally cognizant and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, in other words, they knew stuff, stuff about him. They didn't honor him as God. They chose to rebel against that. They didn't give thanks to God, but they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts they 
had those foolish hearts darkened. So everyone is without excuse. That's the point. Even if you don't have a Bible, even if you don't have a church, even if you don't have a radio with the gospel blaring on it, as we're trying to do in our evangelism with Far East Broadcasting, for instance, even if you're anywhere in the world, you don't have access to the gospel. The Bible would say you're born in a sinking ship and you're actively as a morally cognizant agent showing that you know what the law is, even if you just have it in nature and in conscience. Therefore, you're without excuse. Proverbs 24, 12, you might say, and you might telegraph in your own sentimental expectation of the man who's in the jungle somewhere. You say, well, I don't think they know. If you say, for instance, and here's just a general principle, behold, we did not know this, about someone stumbling into punishment, different application here, but the idea of you claim ignorance, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Now, God will know whether you know it or not. Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And he will, and he will not repay man according to his work? It's a question. Of course he will. So God is going to repay people according to what they have done based on what they know. And so I know this as I get back again to re kind of echoing what we've talked about before. God is just, and in his judgment, it will be just. And I guess it just reaffirms the principle that most people don't understand out there, and that is that hell is not the same experience for everyone. Just like Sodom won't have the same experience as first century Chorazin or Bethsaida. And yet they're going to be judged based on what they've done and what they know. This is different than incapable of faith. I'm talking about the morally cognizant. If you're picturing the 30-year-old man in the jungle, that's different than the one who is incapable of faith. Well, I can think of at least two categories in this regard. There are young children. We've already talked about it. They don't know the right from the left. They don't know the concept of choosing right and refusing the wrong. Deuteronomy 1, verse 39, it speaks of those who were coming through the wilderness and the entire generation was going to be killed. Well, that is except for the little ones. As for your little ones, who you said would become prey out there in the wilderness, you kept complaining about Moses and we're going to die out here in the wilderness. We'd rather go back and eat the leeks and onions by the Nile back in Egypt. Well, for your little ones that you thought were going to be eaten up by the predators in, in the desert and your children, well, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they didn't catch it, they didn't understand it, they don't have the ability, well, they're, they're going to go into the promised land. I'll give it to them and they shall possess it. You see the idea here? They weren't capable of making that moral choice. Therefore, there is not the punishment that comes to the morally cognizant. Yes, they're on a sinking ship. And that's a different message. I preached on it before. What about those incapable of faith? I think there certainly is a special dispensation of God to use a word maybe that I shouldn't use, but God's application of grace, a special application of God's grace to those in that context. What's the age? I don't know. And there's also a second category, the mentally incapacitated. They don't have the ability. They can't comprehend it. They don't have the moral cognizance because they don't have the capacity to think abstractly about their own behavior. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2, I think illustrates this. Ezra, the priest, smart guy, gets up. He's going to read the law before the people. So he brought the law before the assembly. And who did he assemble? Both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. Why would I assemble people that don't understand? There are people that don't have the capacity to understand. Well, I'm not going to assemble them to tell them something they can't even process. Of course, they were all talking about what God required of them in that reading of the law as Ezra the priest stood up and articulated and gave the scripture, gave understanding to the scripture, as it says. So I'm not talking about that, the incapable of faith. That's a different category. What does God do with them? I guess in short, I believe that God gives a special application of God's grace through the payment of Christ on a cross, but that's a different sermon. Well, I don't like Christianity because it doesn't seem like very many are going to be saved. Well, you're right about that. How many are going to be saved? Jesus said just going to be a few. I can't change that. That's what God said. At least proportionally, it is a few. I put it in quotes because it's not a small number, but it's a few if you want to compare it to the rest of the world. Luke 13, 23 through 24, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? 
And you've got people, they're going to ask you, I don't believe in your Christianity if only a small holy huddle are going to be saved. And you can say, okay, I'm sorry, Titanic is sinking, there's an opportunity for you to get off, there's plenty of room for anyone who would get in it to speak in human terms, but you shouldn't worry about how many are going to be saved. You should see that there's an opportunity to be saved and appropriate the solution. And that's what he says, appropriate the solution. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. That's the picture of the ark door closing. I mean, when it's too late, they'll be like, I want to I want to do it. Well, too late then. The opportunity and the door of mercy is open now. Jesus said only if you were going to be saved, that's true. He said it more clearly, I suppose. At least it's recorded more clearly in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. You don't have to do much to go to hell. Just continue on your path. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I can't change that. If that really is your objection, I think it's a foolish objection. How many people choose the oxygen tank? Well, a lot of people are choking down the iced tea, but it drowns them and they die. I still think you should choose the oxygen tank. It just makes sense to me. Well, I would say this. Remember that none are deserving. How many are going to be saved? Well, no one deserves to be saved. That's an important baseline for us. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are the Jews any better off than the Gentiles? Not at all. We've already charged that both Jew and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So I know this, that no one on the ship, and I can speak to the morally cognizant here, no one on the ship deserves to be saved. Everyone is a sinner by choice. And because of that, no one is deserving. How many are going to be saved? I'm speaking in general terms here about the morally cognizant now. You think about those people that know right and wrong. I'm saying the Bible's very clear. It's going to be a few. But when I think about that, I should be thinking about the fact that really no one is deserving to be saved. How many will be saved? A few. Who deserves to be saved? Zero. Less than a few. I would remind every non-Christian that talks to me about, well, I don't want to know if I'm going to become a Christian because only a few people are going to get saved, at least by Christ's words, a few. I would say, well, God's grace is God's to give. He can be gracious, as gracious as he wants to be. Because you start speaking about the fact that why doesn't God force everyone to be saved or why doesn't God draw everyone to Christ? We can speak about effectual calling and we've done that elsewhere. The bottom line is this, whether it's about the unequal access to the gospel or whether it's about the effectual call of Christ moving people to salvation, we can say God is God and he can give his grace to whoever he wants. And when he gives it, it's not to someone who deserves it, which again is the problem with most modern religion. Everyone thinks they deserve God's grace. Matthew 20 verses 11 through 15 on receiving it. This is the parable of the day laborers, the guys who received the payment and later watched God being uh, watched the, the uh, master being generous to these day laborers and, and getting a higher pay than what they, well, they'll explain it here. They grumbled at the master of the house saying, the last worked one hour only and you made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he, the master replied, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me for my generosity? You should not begrudge God for his generosity. If no one is good, no one seeks after God, if no one is righteous, if everyone is morally worthless, as that passage says, then for God to be gracious to you or to them or to anyone, you can't begrudge him for his generosity because it's gravy because no one deserves it in the first place. God's grace is God's to give, to put it in real stark terms, hard passages to swallow, but good passages to 
to exegete if you haven't, and maybe you can listen to my exposition of it on Focal Point. Romans 9, verses 14 and following. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Apply that question, rhetorical question, to any issue of what seems from our perspective to be inequality. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'm going to have compassion on whom I have compassion. I don't have to answer to you about my generosity. Don't begrudge me for my generosity. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say, well, then why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And the answer to that is, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Job, at the end of the book, stops asking questions about what's right and wrong for God to do to him. He finally puts his hand over his mouth, and he retracts and repents in dust and ashes and says, I shouldn't have spoken up. I spoke. I didn't know what I was talking about. In the end, it gets down to the fact that God is God, and his grace is his to give however he chooses. Even if you want to think in those stark terms, which isn't bad to do to think in those stark terms, but that's not usually how we're thinking as we're appealing to someone to get in the lifeboat. Well, what about the guy on deck 11? Don't worry about the guy on deck 11 until you're saved. Then you should. But let's, before we get to that point, focus on the grace of grace. And by that, I mean you can't focus on entitlement, which is where the average non-Christian is. Everyone should be entitled to get on the lifeboat. And the answer is no one should be entitled to get on the lifeboat. No one is entitled. That's a fallacy. You're asking the wrong question to say, why doesn't God save everyone? That is the wrong question. Why? Because no one is deserving. Everyone's born in sin. Everyone is a sinner by choice. All the morally cognizant are sinners by choice. So don't ask me why God doesn't save everyone. God is not entitled to. God can save whoever he wants. Doesn't matter if someone's got a call a thousand times to get in a lifeboat and someone just heard a faint whisper and just felt the listing of the ship and heard an alarm in the distant hallway. It doesn't matter. You could be standing next to a guy yelling for you to get in the lifeboat, and the other guy just feels like he should try and find his way to a lifeboat. Either way, to say, why doesn't God put everyone in a lifeboat is the wrong question. The right question is, why would God save anyone if the problem of sin is what we've just articulated it to be? That's what you should get a non-Christian to at least understand about the problem of sin. It is so severe, it is so systemic, it is so problematic that God should not save anyone. God should take the entire world and everyone in it and put it in the divine trash compactor and hit crush. Ephesians 2, 7 and 8, the whole point, and we'll see this from God's perspective, I think, when we get in his presence, the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus is immeasurable. You'll think, not, I deserved it, I was entitled to it, why isn't my neighbor here, why isn't my loved one here? You're going to go, this is just unthinkable that I'm here. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You don't see it as an entitlement. You see it as an act of grace. It is a gracious act of grace. You need to focus on the grace of what grace is. It's a gracious thing. It's a fallacy to think you deserve it or anyone deserves it. You should be begging us for the opportunity to hear the gospel and get saved, not begrudging it, crossing your arms and saying, why doesn't everyone have this same opportunity as they see it? Exclusivity and biblical inclusivity. Yes, the means of salvation is exclusive. There's only one way. It's been motivating missions for centuries. How are they going to call on him if they haven't believed? How are they going to believe if they've never heard? How are they going to hear without someone preaching? How are they going to preach unless they're sent? Well, that's why we say when someone brings the message, man, you're an amazing person. It's so great to see you. I'm so glad you you brought this message. Maybe in the modern day, we'd speak about kissing their neck, giving them a hug, saying we're so grateful. The old days in terms of this picture of the Old Testament, how beautiful the feet of those who preach the good news. That is motivating 
missions and has and it should continue to. Once you become an inclusive theologian in terms of universalism, believing everyone's going to get saved, your mission passions goes away. Why, why send anyone to foreign lands? Why are our people in Guatemala? Why do we send people to, to Cairo? Why do we work in, in other places in the world? Why, why do we care if everyone's going to be saved in the end? Yeah, there's only one exclusive means of salvation. But the few is not tiny. Genesis 2, when speaking of the blessing that's going to come to the whole world, says from a intergenerational perspective, looking through the corridor of time. Yeah, maybe a few proportionally. But as he says to Abraham, as he reiterates the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 22, 10 chapters after he initially did it, he said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. We're talking here about those who are going to be blessed and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Few is not a tiny group of people. It's not a minute, minuscule group of people. The call is inclusive. Think about it. Go make disciples everywhere. Go to all the nations. Go everywhere. This is an inclusive message. So when they cross their arms and say, I don't get it. If it's just you guys that are being saved, this isn't a secret society that has secret handshakes that we're not wanting people to learn. We want to broadcast it. We're broadcasting it for free every day. We're printing it and passing it out everywhere. We're putting Bibles in hotel nightstands. We want people to hear the gospel. It's an inclusive call. I love the way Luke 14 puts it. I love studying this passage and preaching on it back in that great chapter, 10 chapters before the end of the book. Parable Jesus says the servant came, reported the fact that the banquet hall wasn't filled, reported it to his master. And the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servants, go out quickly into the streets, into the lanes of the city, bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done. And still there's room. And the master said, go, I love this, to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. That is the picture of 2 Corinthians 5. We are there as though God were making his appeal through us, being reconciled to God, and we're giving this message to everyone and anyone, everywhere. doesn't matter who they are, what strata they're in. The multitude is diverse. Every nation of the earth is going to be blessed. The spiritual progeny and, and descendants of Abraham... I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude that no one could number, just like it says in Genesis 12, Genesis 22, from every nation, every tribe, the peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands. There's a huge multitude, and it's a diverse multitude. God is not sitting here with a corner saying, well, I'm just going to save my holy huddle. He wants that to be a diverse, big, broad, inclusive group of people. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, think of your calling. Look at us. I mean, Corinth. I mean, Corinth was a, as I often say, it was the Orange County of the ancient world. It, it, was, it was well-to-do and all the rest. And yet he looked around in the church and said, well, look at us. Not many wise, according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Look at the diversity and the cutting through of the strata of all the people in the family of God. So I get it. You want, in your sentimental view, everyone to be saved because you imagine them to be entitled. And you think, well, I don't know if I want to be a Christian if it's so exclusive. It may be exclusive. The means is exclusive. But the message is broad. The end result is big numerically. And God wants this message to go out to every nation, every people group. You ought to be sharing indiscriminately with people from every walk of life. Don't let them reject the gospel because they say Christianity is exclusive. You can't concede the point. It is exclusive in terms of its means. All right. Maybe that helps. Let's pray. God, thank you for the chance that we have to think through this a little bit, maybe more focused, uh, maybe with a greater duration of time to give our minds to think about the fact that we have a message to proclaim and to defend, to give a defense for that certainly is 
absolute and exclusive, but it's a message that makes perfect sense. It's a message that is gracious and kind and merciful. It's a call that you want us to bring to every people, tribe, and nation. You want us to be actively concerned. And just like that parable illustrates in Luke 14, to be compelling people on the highways and byways to come in, fill up the house. We know the problem is sin. We pray that you would break through the sin of those on our lists that we want to see saved. Certainly as we approach the Christmas holiday, we know that we're going to see people that we've been praying for. We want to boldly share the gospel. We want to compassionately share the gospel. We want to call people to be reconciled to you in Christ as the only means of salvation. We want to do that urgently and kindly and intelligently and diplomatically. So give us words, God, to say, and let this lecture tonight be helpful in how we craft our presentation and our defense. Thank you, God, for this crowd, and I pray you'd use these words to equip us for better evangelism in Jesus' name.